Yeah, I think our, our faith really was hijacked. And, you know, the Christian right, you know, they, a couple of decades ago in the 70s, political operatives were looking for a way to increase the power of the Republican Party and bring white Southerners in particular into the party. And one of the ways they did that was to fund a Christian right. The Christian right would not have existed but for funding from corporations that wanted to, you know, got sort of environmental regulations and financial regulations and make more money. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Prom. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Reverend Jennifer Butler. She is the CEO of Faith in the Public Life. Under the Obama administration, she was the chair of the White House Council of Faith and Neighborhood Partnerships, and she is the author of a new book, Who Stole My Bible? Reverend Butler, thank you for joining the conversation. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So, Faith and Public Life is a movement of 50,000 religious leaders. That's, that's quite a few. Uh, tell us more about this organization. Yes, well, we were founded in 2005 at a time when um, the sort of social justice religious movement uh, had really lost its voice, and a number of faith leaders came together and decided to create an organization that could help revitalize the movement, that could bring skills and strategies and an overall um, connectivity that we had lost over the decades, especially as the Christian right ascended. And um, so we, we have gradually built out this network. And in addition to the 50,000 religious leaders of all 
religious persuasions. We have offices in states. We're, um, we've got an office in Georgia and Florida and Ohio. We're going deeper in North Carolina and Virginia and Wisconsin. We're um, you know, working with two to 5,000 clergy in each of those states and uh, lay leaders. And we're not only advancing public policies that represent our values, we're also engaging in um, uh, voter turnout and civic engagement, making sure that the rights of voters are protected. So who are the the names, you know, obviously when you got 50,000 uh, religious leaders following you, you, you don't want to start naming some and then leave some out, but who are some of the, the names of folks that we might recognize that are part of, of your good work? Oh, sure. Well, we've partnered a lot with uh, Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign, uh, Jonathan Wilson Hargrove, um, Tracy Blackman, um, Rabbi Jason Kimmelman Block. There's a big network called Bend the Ark that is uh, Jewish leaders. Uh, we, on the, the state level, we're working with the Muslim community. Um, you know, on our board is Parvez Ahmad, who's an economist and Muslim leader in Florida. Oh, everybody, you know, <laughs> so, so, Sister Simone Campbell of Network Lobby. Uh, I went with Susie Painter, who uh, headed up the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship to the border to contest Jeff Sessions' zero tolerance policy and defend the rights of immigrant families at the border. Um, so um, Brian McLaren, some of the folks who've been on your show recently, Guthrie, Grace Fitzsimmons, you know, this religious movement of people who are really fighting for justice and the common good is really being rekindled and is resurging. And so it's quite exciting to see we're, we're working, you know, across faith and across even, um, political persuasion. Um, and so I think what we're able to do is really build power and move important issues. And uh, it's been one of the joys of my life to be a part of that rekindling of a more progressive leading faith movement. It's got to be pretty cool to, uh, you know, look across, obviously not in the last year, but, you know, looking across maybe a Zoom meeting for the last year and seeing some of those uh, great thinkers and great leaders. Um, you know, what's that like being the person who, who, who gathers those folks together and casts a vision of, of the work you're doing? It's very humbling, and I learned so much from each one of them. Um, the other night, you know, I got to sit down with Lisa Sharon Harper, who, you know, used to work at Sojourners and now leads her own Freedom Road um, uh, network. And, you know, we, we talked about spiritual leadership and writing books, and she's leading some really difficult conversations around reproductive health and um, galvanizing people around a common, you know, agenda. Um, you know, to be able to stand next to William and Barber, I learned so much from working with Reverend Barber. We uh, teamed up during the Republican efforts to kill the Affordable Care Act and cut 20 million people off health care in 2017. And we led rally after rally. I'll never forget this moment. Um, and this was actually even before the health care fight. I think we were challenging Jeff Sessions' appointment to Trump's cabinet and we were um, also challenging Steve Bannon's uh, advisory role. And so we, we launched an effort um, to condemn the cabinet of bigotry is what we called it. And we, were, we ended up marching to Mitch McConnell's office with 
couple hundred faith leaders, people of faith, lay leaders, clergy, and we were packing the hallways there, and we had this statement, and I remember <laughs> Reverend Barbara's like, Reverend Butler, I think we ought to read this statement, and I was like, oh my gosh, the hallway's packed. I could see like police in riot gear kind of like down the hallway watching us, <laughs> and so I was like, he's like, you read a line, and then let's have everybody repeat, and then I'll read a line, and I was like, oh wow, we're going to really create a ruckus. So we did that. We went back and forth and we were reading through the statement. And I was like, wow, 300 people. It's going to be really cumbersome. It worked beautifully. And then the police started coming in with their megaphones and they wanted to clear the hallway. Well, we have a right as citizens. That's an open building, you know, and it's open to the public. And we had tried to meet with McConnell, but he denied any sort of meeting or, um, you know, opposed it. So um, at that point, I looked at him. I was like, let's kneel and pray. So we knelt and prayed. Um and uh, that just kind of kept everybody spiritually grounded in that moment. Um, but I just remember that moment where he, he was always sort of like helping me understand power and our right to stand in these sacred hallways. We weren't breaking any laws. We were being respectful. We were being nonviolent. We were praying. We were reading our statement. Um, and, um, you know, I think, you know, for me, as like a white Southern woman, I've often been taught to obey everything, you know, the authorities say. Um, and it was a real lesson for me in training my body to really, you know, look to God, look to justice, look to scripture, um, not listen to that societal voice quite as much, um, but to really kind of stand firm and to be confident in our right as um, the people, this is the people's house to really, you know, lift up our voices. And, uh, you know, and then we left peaceably and, um, uh, all of that, but I just strategically learned in particular so much from him, and I could go on and on about all the other folks who work with. I, I, it's just an honor and a privilege to be, you know, helping to connect folks and uh, get this movement rekindled. Well, I'm sure, you know, when people think about your work, they think of, of moments like that, of peaceful protests, but what are some of the unseen things that y'all do? Yeah, a lot of it's kind of nerdy stuff, you know, like, so when I started this work, uh, you know, what, back in 2005, six, there really were not big databases of faith leaders, you know, people, um, you know, if we needed to pressure, say, a senator in Ohio or Georgia, we didn't have as a community, that kind of connectivity. And so a lot of what we've done is just that meticulous work of like building a database getting everybody's cell phone. We used to have sort of like, what level of relationship are we at? Are we BFFs? That's if we have their cell phone. So we can call them and say, hey, can you write an op-ed? Can we help support you? What do you want to say? You know? So some of it is just good old fashioned, um, you know, hitting the pavement and getting all these systems in place. Um, you know, some of it is convincing donors to support this movement. Could I, convincing people within the progressive religious movement to really invest in their own voice. Some of my favorite moments actually have been when I help somebody rediscover their faith uh, and come, come into their own spiritual voice. And I tell a story like that in my recent book where after one of our rallies, it was one of the Affordable Care Act defense rallies, we all took our sacred holy texts to Representative Paul Ryan's office. And again, you know, he would not meet with us. So um, 
to people's house. We went, you know, it's an open building. We went to his office. We stood in front of his office with a couple hundred people. We prayed. We shared stories of those who would have been affected by the cuts in healthcare who would die because of those cuts. We read from our sacred scripture. And so we piled those texts up at his door. And, you know, we did this for a good long time. He was in there, actually. We knew we had the intel that he was in the office and we prayed and sang hymns. He's a Catholic, you know, politician and appealed to his values. And as we left, the highlight for me was a woman who I found wandering the hallways. I'd seen her at the rally and she looked dazed, you know, she looked like starstruck and dazed. And I was like, are you okay? Do you know where to go next? And she said, you know, I feel like I am learning to speak again. I'm learning to speak from a place of faith. I've never been able to connect all this up. And she, she was having a deep spiritual experience of really grounding herself in her faith. And I think for so many of us who have watched the Christian right become the voice of religion and Christian nationalism define white Christian America and abuse our faith and use it for white supremacist purposes, I think, you know, those of us who've been through that sometimes are deeply ashamed of our faith voice. Some of us have not been raised in congregations that really trained us to be able to ground ourselves in our scriptures. We've been taught kind of a different type of Christianity that has very little to do with the Bible, actually. And so to see people regain their faith and ground themselves back in their holy texts has been some of the most exciting moments for me. You have a new book out, Who Stole My Bible, in which you invite readers to see the sacred text as a handbook to resist tyranny. You wrote, today we face fundamental threat to democracy, the system of governance that protects the fundamental biblical teachings that human beings are created in God's image and worthy of dignity and respect. Walk us through the journey of formulating what you wanted to say in this book. Yeah, you know, I wanted um, to write a book that helped people understand that the, our faith fundamentally calls us to change systems of oppression so that ultimately every person's dignity is respected, we love our neighbor, and everybody is free to live life and live life abundantly. And um, I wanted to share um, stories of um, faith strategies that have been implemented in recent years to really rekindle the faith voice and our, our power and influence. And it's interesting, as I thought to organize the book, initially, I was really inspired by this book on tyranny by Timothy Snyder, and he had these 20 lessons from the 20th century on resisting fascism and authoritarianism. Um, he's a Holocaust historian and Yale, Yale histor European history buff, historian, expert. Um, and um, as I spoke about it to a friend of mine and mentor, she said, you know, you come so alive when you talk about scripture. Why don't you structure this book along the lines of the Bible and just retell the story of scripture and put your lessons in that format? And that was brilliant. At first, I was overwhelmed. I was like, well, the Bible's a really long book. <laughs> but then as I did that, uh, it energized me. And I really enjoyed um, getting inside the stories that I read. And I, I actually retell stories from Genesis all the way through to Revelation so that people can understand them in the context in which they're written and really ground themselves more in the power of those narratives 
which are truly meant to give us courage for resisting the tyrants of our day. So the curious thing about Holy Scriptures is that one person can pick them up, reading it and finding no implications whatsoever to uh, the drive someone like yourself might have to seek liberation and equality for all people. Um, you wrote, this way of grounding our resistance in the Bible is not just cherry picking a good verse to quote or in our speeches or comments to the press. It's a way of growing our movement insight and compassion as we imagine ourselves in the story, identifying with the challenges of that moment. I wonder if you will tell us about uh, how your understanding of scriptures in such a way uh, came into formation. You know, I think um, I first began to understand that as a teenager trying to decide on the meaning of life, you know, typical sort of coming of age um, journey. And um, I was really interested in my Christian faith, but I was trying to sort out what it was about. And most of my questions could not, would not, were not answered in my white 8,000 member Methodist church. Paul Steeple Church. And so I started studying scripture on my own. And I read Jesus' mission statement I've come to bring good news to the poor and freedom to the oppressed. I was like, wow, that, that's radical. Because as a teen, I was really terrified. It was the height of the nuclear arms race, terrified of nuclear Armageddon. It was an era in which we were all kind of wrestling with that. And I also Grew up in the South where we gave, um, in Atlanta particularly, you know, we, we talked about um, the New South and how we'd overcome our past, but I saw racism all around me, you know, and I heard it in my family and in my neighbors as I attended one of the newly integrated Atlanta public schools growing up. And so I um, began to just really, you know, I, first of all, I, you know, I, I said to Jesus at one point, I was like, okay, I commit myself to following you. I don't, you know, know if you exist or whatever, but I like what you're saying and I like what you're about and I'm going to follow you and see how this works out. Um, and um, yet, you know, in my community, there were, there were no folks kind of talking about those aspects of scripture and applying them. And so I basically have been on a lifelong journey to figure that out. Some of that um, took me, you know, in college, I ended up being a part of the Baptist Student Union and the pastor there introduced me to the first woman minister that I ever met and introduced me to the struggle for ending apartheid in South Africa. And looking back on it now, um, as a as a Baptist chaplain, he was really, you know, pushing my theological thinking uh, and giving me words to express my faith. I then went and lived overseas. I was in a Mayan village in Belize and the Peace Corps. And uh, I learned about what was happening in Latin America and how it differed from what I was hearing about um, growing up in the South and uh, in certain circles, that there was a struggle for liberation and for freedom and that U.S. foreign policy uh, had very negative effects on the people of Belize and Guatemala and other places that I um, met people in and developed relationships in. And so as I came back, I was able you know, to go to seminary and be introduced to liberation theologies, feminist theology, womanist theology, theology by Black women. Um, and as I read those, I realized this articulation of faith is actually true to Scripture and true to the Jesus I know. And so finally, I had the words 
you know, to express uh, the faith that had been kindled in my heart as a young teenager. And so my heart today goes out to those who, um, you know, have basically been taught a false gospel. We know that so many people are leaving uh, the Christian faith and leaving their churches. And for a while, I uh, co-led a church plant in Washington, D.C., where I ran into a lot of these folks. Um, a lot of them, incidentally, had read Brian McLaren's books, and this had helped them kind of navigate out, and they came to our ministry, and our ministry was kind of like held in pubs and public spaces, and then they would find their way often into congregations like Brian's, and, um, which is still a really dynamic congregation here in the Washington, D.C. region. So so my journey has been one of um, you know really being able to put words to the faith that are more akin to the African-American uh, faith tradition and the civil rights tradition um, than white Christianity that I grew up with. Just a fun fact. Uh, every time Brian McLaren's name is spoken in my presence, angels begin to sing in my ears. Um, but that was just a little bit from our conversation before we actually started recording. And now, now I realize I our, you on that. yeah, well, I'm realizing now they didn't listen to our conversation before about my just absolute love for him. So, um, uh, you know, I actually, in awe of him. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> um, you know, for those listening to this, uh, that don't have the same understanding of scripture or uh, more than likely those that tend to, to rival your work out there listening to this podcast, um, what might be a starting place for them if they're open to re-examining scriptures to see, see them in the way that you've come to see them, not to say, mm -hmm. you know, Hey, look, uh, Reverend Butler's way of seeing scriptures is, you know, the right way. Everybody's got to do this way. But, you know, for those that are open to saying, you know, I've never really thought of scripture in that particular way, where, where would you point them to start? Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. When we talk about scripture in this way, I think sometimes people are afraid that I'm taking a very low view of scripture, kind of brushing it aside. And actually what I'm asking us to do is take scripture more seriously to really understand and the dynamic um, way in which it was written, how it was put together, it actually enlivens our faith and deepens our understanding and our spiritual life. I feel like the reading I grew up with was actually very shallow and um, uh, didn't really grasp the depth of the lessons. And so I don't know if you're thinking about, you know, referring to certain authors uh, or whatnot, but but one of the the passages that I tackle early on in my book that I like to talk to people about is um, the creation story. And it's funny because in recent times there's been so much debate around science versus the creation story, and so many people get upset. Well, you know, the Bible says there, the Earth was created in seven days, and therefore science and evolution have to be wrong. Uh, and I think it's something like, I forget, I say in the book, it's almost half the population, you know, sort of believes in the seven day kind of creation myth. And there's that creation history museum out, uh, I think it's in Kentucky. Um, but, but really, that's not what uh, the creation story is about. Um, it is actually an ethical exploration of the world and who God is and how we should live together. It's a critique of the creation myths of that day that said that human beings were created by the gods to be slaves. And we know, you know, throughout the creation story, God creates and says it's good. So creation is good. Human beings are very good. 
and they're created in God's image. That was a radical paradigm shift for the people of that day. Um, and when you understand that that is the cosmology, that's, that's the way the universe is ordered, we're then called to live in such a way as we honor every person's dignity and we accept the fact that creation is good and we must care for creation. That actually, to me, enlivens my faith rather than worrying, you know, in, in that day and age when that story uh, was told and then recorded, uh, there was no such thing as science. Nobody was trying to say, here's scientifically how the world was created. Scientific method came during the Enlightenment age. They were actually doing something much more profound that has implications for the way we live together in community and in our country. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. What will ministry at your church look like as we exit the pandemic? Where do you see new opportunities and insights needed? What are the pressure points that need support? BSK, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, invites you to take a short survey where you can share your insights. You'll also be entered to win a $100 gift certificate to an online Black-owned bookstore. Help us out and take the survey today at bsk.edu backslash pathways. That's bsk.edu backslash pathways. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Let's talk about tyranny. Um, you speak about the threat of Christian nationalism in the book, inviting readers to re-examine their understanding of God from the scriptures as one of compassionate care for all of humanity. And by knowing this God, we are unable to tolerate or revere tyrants. It's, it's obvious um, by the statistics at the last two election cycles that white evangelical Christians favor one political party over the other, which tends to be in lockstep with Christian nationalism. For those that might know the term but are not deeply aware of its ideologies and common expressions, might you give us just a, a brief overview? Yeah, what is Christian nationalism? Um, it's uh, there are a couple of ways to look at it. Uh, one, you know, is it's um, Christianity co-opted in the service of an ethno-national power um, that God has a plan for this nation. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a call to identify more with our race and with our faith and to say our faith is the only way and to exclude others, to build power for, you know, our own uh, religious community, Christian, our own um, race, white Christian, uh, over and against other people, rather than being a pluralistic nation that shares power and shares wealth. And um there are a couple of great studies uh, for listeners. I, I'm a big fan of Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry's work uh, studying how many people have bought into Christian nationalism 
Um, they say 20% are ambassadors. They're full in on Christian nationalism. 32% are accommodators. Uh, so that's almost half the country, you know, has really been inculcated in this way of understanding the Christian faith. And then Robert P. Jones has an excellent book out um, uh, that sort of documents how this came to be in the post-Civil War era as um, the lost cause of the Confederacy was taken up by white Southerners who had lost the Civil War, and they kind of developed a lost cause theology uh, in which um, Southern whites viewed their culture as God's favored, and um, they developed a sort of theology that emphasized personal piety, de-emphasized structural injustice and addressing that, said that that wasn't part of the Christian faith, um, and um, were able to sort of get people bought into um, the exact opposite of what the, the Bible calls us to do, which is to build a world in which human dignity is respected. That includes not just our own neighborhood and family, that includes the society in which we live. In your experience, uh, you know, why do you think this group fundamentally tolerates, that being white evangelical Christians, why do you think this group fundamentally tolerates or reveres these political ideologies, even though the scriptures of their faith um, seem to contradict them? Yeah, I think our, our faith really was hijacked. And, you know, the Christian right, which I've studied in depth um, and wrote a book about actually you know, they, a couple of decades ago in the 70s, political operatives were looking for a way to um, increase the power of the Republican Party and bring white Southerners in particular into the party. Um, and one of the ways they did that was to fund a Christian right. The Christian right would not have existed, but for funding from corporations that wanted to, you know, got sort of environmental regulations and financial regulations and make more money, they basically funded Jerry Falwell and others to build and convince them, cajole them to build this kind of political movement that they had never had interest in prior to that. And the defining issue for them that really got them into this was the desegregation of public schools um, in the South. Uh, and there was a Supreme Court decision that was forcing the Christian private segregation academies to integrate or not receive federal dollars, and they were liv livid about that. Um, so it was really racism that was the sort of foundation for the birth of the Christian right, and a lot of money has gone into convincing white Christians that Christianity is about um, personal piety and uh, focusing in on these sexuality issues that really aren't spoken of much in the Bible, rather than the 2,000 verses of scripture that tell us to build a just economy uh, and to address poverty and to welcome the stranger, to uh, care for the least of these, that that is actually how we'll be judged in the end of times by Jesus, <laughs> or not the end of times, but when we die, however you want to look at that. Um, so, you know, I think I think we've actually been hoodwinked, those of us who are white Christians. We have a lot of soul searching to do. We need to read our history, and we need to read scripture with new eyes. There's a reoccurring theme in the Hebrew scriptures uh, that you recognize in the book, uh, that, and it calls the readers to remember their story, to remember where they came from, that they were once slaves in Egypt, 
Um, in the book, you invite readers to remember um, what we came from. Why do you think uh, people still see, a lot of people still see the civil rights movement and the fight for equal rights as something in the past solved by legislative acts and, and not an existing reality? Mm, great question. You know, we, we've been taught um, a propagandist history, really. You know, I grew up in the South. My sister and I were just debriefing this the other day. And I, um, you know, went to a newly integrated public school through sixth grade and then was sent to a private, uh, what I now know is a Christian segregation academy. It's one of the biggest private schools in Atlanta. And I now know that uh, a cousin school uh, to that denied MLK's son entry into the school. You know, they basically de facto had this policy that they turned down black students. They, they wouldn't inter integrate. Um, and so in that school, you know, we were taught kind of a, um, a pro-Confederacy, pro-Southern, very, very, sometimes somewhat subtle, but as we, she and I kind of moved north and broadened our horizons, I lived overseas for a while, um, we began to learn a different history. And so I think a lot of us need to go back now and kind of deprogram ourselves and, and learn that what, what truly happened is, um, you know, after the Civil War, Lincoln is assassinated by Confederates, um, and then Johnson takes power, and he ends Reconstruction of the South. This is why Reverend Barber says we need a third Reconstruction, because the first one was ended very quickly. We went from 80% Black turnout in elections and many African Americans being elected to office to uh, none being able to vote because of voter suppression. Now look what's happening today. You know, in my home state of Georgia, in the wake of this election where it was so clear that, um, you know, Trump was trying to sway the results back in his favor after he had lost the Senate races, the Republicans in that state are now trying to um, pass a host of voter suppression laws, including one that would prevent souls to the polls voting on Sundays, which is the way in which African-American churches ensure that their folks can get to the polls if they don't have cars and they have to work on weekdays and um, you know, it's just so brazen. They're doing it in broad daylight. That should, uh, if anything, clue those of us who are in white to going back and rereading the history, particularly of the 80s and 90s. I mean, here I thought I went to the first, you know, one of the first integrated public schools in the South, and I, I didn't pause to ask, wait, why, why was it my generation that went through that? Because Brown versus Board of Education, which was to desegregate public schools in the South, that passed in the 50s. Wait a minute. I was going to kindergarten in the 70s. What happened in those 20 years that those schools were never integrated? Now I learned that schools have reverse course. We're more segregated now uh, than we were uh, back in the 70s when I started school. In fact, we've completely reversed those gains. And the reason for that is that um, the Reagan administration and a, a Nixon Supreme Court reversed all of the um, the decisions that actually helped integrate the school, the the funding, for example, around busing and uh, public schools. So, um, you know, I'm having to go back and and learn my history in a new way, and that's something I'm actively doing is even going through my ancestry and understanding how uh, the wealth of my family and my generation is fueled by uh, racism and the assets that we were able to get as white people 
coming as settlers into Georgia. So we, we need to know our history. And it, what's fascinating is, you know, as I was going through this and doing all this activism in the Trump era, this, this phrase, remember you, remember you were once, remember you were once slaves in Egypt and I brought you out. And so I started to research that in the Bible and I was like, how many times is that said? It's 32 times, whereas uh, the phrase creator God is only used six times. It's the most oft used phrase. And not only that, um, it precedes the Ten Commandments. It's the preface to all of the law of the Hebrew scriptures. And so um, we're, I, I see within it a double command. The first part of it is remember, remember, look at your history, know who you are, because the, the tyrants of our day will try to whitewash history, quite literally in this circumstance, because they did whitewash it. They told it through the eyes of white Southern Confederates. And there was a deliberate propaganda battle to like really convert history and to, to retell the story um, and, and to obfuscate the structural racism. Um, and then uh, the other part of it is, remember, I am the God who liberates, who brings people out of slavery. So it's remembering and it's knowing who God is. God is the God who liberates those who are oppressed by the systems of our day. I've always found a bit ironic that you know, the, the group that tends to cherry pick Old Testament laws to press down on those they think are living, quote, in sin, you know, ignore the many times that the Hebrew people were warned, you know, to, to not be a people of injustice, to, to seek mercy. And so, you know, many times they're reminded of their story. It's juxtaposed by the prophets who um, unfortunately watch the people collapse into themselves as they lived unjust lives. Um, so That's right. In the, in the book, uh, there's a particular name that you, you can't avoid, uh, Donald Trump. But Donald Trump is no longer the president. For some, they might be thinking that the problem has been solved. Uh, what might you say to them? Unfortunately, it has not. Um, I mean, when we all knew that, you know, I think we came to terms when Trump was elected that there was something we had missed in our own history that Trump himself wasn't the problem, that uh, we had never actually fully addressed the original sin of racism and slavery in America. And now going forward, um, it's very clear that Trumpism remains a force to be reckoned with. Um, you know, a large percentage of Republicans are still very galvanized behind Trump. We saw an attempt to steal the election uh, for Donald Trump and to not accept the certification of votes. We saw an insurrection at the Capitol in which people were killed. Um, at least five people were killed and about 140 or more were injured. Today, my staff who live downtown, including staff of color, have to shelter in place because there's a rumored um, attempt or actually intel that one of the white supremacist militia groups plans to attack the Capitol uh, because of some of these uh, conspiracy theories that are circulating. And so, uh, and then, of course, the, the voter suppression laws in the wake of this election that are being passed in Republican states are brought forward, uh, which faith leaders are actually mobilized to oppose, which is great. But um, it's clear that um, there's been sort of no repentance you know, even in the certification process on January 6th, even after these insurrectionists nearly lynched Mike Pence, he was just seconds away from being grabbed by the mob 
they so many Republicans still refused, um, you know, to vote in favor of certification of those ballots. Um, and so all of that, you know, puts us on notice that we have so much work to do to repair our democracy. And it's so critical that our moral voices be raised up because for those of us who, of course, watch that video footage, some of the most prominent flags flying on that day were Christian nationalist flags. And so we have uh, some repentance to do. We, as white Christians in particular, have a lot of work to do with our own people to bring them out of the wilderness and back into true faith. At its core, this book is about creating a new world with a radical vision in which God's is working with us, leading us, and where justice rolls down like water and righteousness like everlasting stream. Mm. What must we be doing right now uh, to do our part in seeing that vision become a reality? Gosh, there's so much we can do. I mean, one, ground yourself in this vision of scripture so that you feel spiritually fed and can speak articulately to your faith. I've met so many people in this work who who know intuitively there's a connection between doing justice and loving mercy and their faith, and yet they feel insecure about talking about that. And you know, they almost feel like maybe I need a seminary degree to be able to do that. No, not at all. Um, and I think uh, grounding ourselves in scripture will give us courage and will give us confidence in speaking out. The other thing we can do is make sure that we're part of some of the many faith campaigns that are happening right now, my organization, Faith in Public Life, you can sign up to receive alerts and messaging support and training opportunities. The Poor People's Campaign is a fantastic campaign to be a part of. Many states have incredible organizing opportunities happening at the local level. We can connect in and support particularly Black-led movements uh, at this moment in time and, and be good for those of us who are white, be good white allies to those movements, help them raise funds and gain power. Um, all of us will be called to something different. And I think, you know, it's important just to, to pray and center yourself and think, what are the gifts that you have to bring to this moment? Because I can tell you, there's no greater joy. <sighs> there's just really no greater joy than being aligned with God's vision of abundance and human dignity and to be able to join in solidarity with others and move forward in hope. That is what gets me energy every day and I can guarantee it, it will give others energy as well. So, you know, I know a lot of us in this time, we can feel overwhelmed. Oh my gosh, we've been through so much <sighs> in the past year. You can hear it in my voice. Um, but um, the good news is, and, you know, I talk about this when I cover the, the book of Revelation, which often none of us know what to do with, but I guarantee you, you read my chapter on Revelation, you'll know, truly, you know, um, God you know, tells us that, you know, even in the worst of times, people, the cloud of witnesses, you know, we, our spiritual ancestors went up against impossible odds and prevailed. Um, one of the things I've learned in this era is that hope is an orientation of the spirit. It is a choice um, to move forward with God's vision, to move forward in imagination, um, and to let God take care of the rest, but to, to, to really um, 
commit ourselves to that and move forward. It's not a feeling, it's a choice and it's a commitment. Um, and the more you move into that, the more hopeful and more joyful you will feel. For pastors uh, that might be listening to this, uh, they might be serving churches that are just not aware, let alone involved in these things. How might this book be a resource to help them get started? Yeah, you know, the, the book is really suited for a small group study, and it has discussion questions. Um, the feedback I've gotten on it is that it's very accessible. You know, one of my beefs is that we've so often taken biblical study and exegesis and theology, the things you learn in seminary, and we make it so complicated. It's really quite clear and simple and fun and imaginative. And so the book, you know, I think can be intriguing for academics and people looking to preach, but also just to the layperson who wants to learn how to read the Bible and wants to be grounded in scripture. Each chapter really has case studies that link to the Bible passage. You know, how do we ground ourselves in truth? What does the Bible say about truth? How can we, you know, advance truth and fight conspiracy theories? And how are faith communities doing that? That's one of the chapters in the book, and it's rooted in the text about Pontius Pilate. Um, and then in the back, you know, there's a, a resource and a follow-up reading list. Um, and so I think all of those are great tools, I think, for either clergy or lay leaders or reading groups people wanting to become activists. It gives kind of layers of different uh, assets that folks can use. Last question, what's your hope for the book? My hope is that it um, challenges in particular white Christians to continue to come out of the wilderness. Um, and I think my heart is most, you know, the, the um, dedication in the book says, I dedicate this book to the brave and sometimes lonely Christians finding their way out of the wilderness and into the streets. May you find joy in reclaiming and resisting. So my heart most goes to, to those folks who are recommitting themselves and really looking for a way to ground their spiritual life, that they feel powered and fueled and excited by the book to engage in new ways. Well, if you want to stay connected with Jennifer, check out her work at revjenbutler.com and faithinpubliclife.org. You can follow her on social media as well. Uh, we hope you'll go out and purchase Who Stole My Bible, wherever books are sold. Reverend Butler, thank you for making the time to join the conversation. Uh, we are grateful for your call to take heart that the revelation as deep as our brokenness, as high as our potential, has drawn back the veil, reminding us that new thing can come and be done. Amen. Thanks so much for having me. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. 
Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.